This is Incredible Stories Podcast, Episode 15, Tom Dooley, A Murderous Song. Yahoy hoy everyone, it's time for another Incredible Stories podcast. I'm Josh Virla, your sibilating host, and thanks for being here. Today, we are diving into a piece of Americana, more precisely, an American folk song called Tom Dooley. You may be familiar with this song, popularized by the Kingston Trio. It's about a man who murdered a young woman, then is hung, but the true story behind this charming murder ballad involves a post-Civil War soldier, Appalachia, a love square, and a former North Carolina governor. Want to check out the song? Let's croon. So that's just a little snippet of the song, and a big thanks to George Posley for his rendition of the Kingston Trio version of Tom Dooley. I'm going to link to his YouTube channel in the show notes, so check it out for his other music and stuff. Um, This folk song is taken from the 1866 murder of a young lass named Laura Foster, aka Australian for Dead. And the song itself takes various forms and casts the players in the story in ways that make a good story. But basically what the song is telling us is a watered-down version of this story. So the song saying a young woman named Laura Foster who was stunning in the looks area was being wooed by Mr. Bob Grayson, whom was a Yankee schoolteacher, that is a northerner, But then into Miss Laura's life came a tall, handsome soldier from the Confederate Army named Tom Dooley. A bit of a side note, Dooley is actually spelled D-U-L-A, but in Appalachia the A was pronounced Y, and some other weird things with how how they say things. It's, It's weird. Okay, so then Tom meets a girl named Anne, and she falls in love with Tom, and Tom finds her even more beautiful than Laura. Anne gets jealous and kills Laura, and Tom takes the blame for the murder. Mr. Grayson hunts down Tom. Tom is found guilty and sentenced to hang. Before he's hung, he confesses the murder, letting Anne off the hook. Then years later, Anne either dies in an accident or goes crazy and hangs herself. Versions differ. All right, now here's the actual story. Tom Dooley, a.k.a. The Thickness, lived in Elkville, North Carolina a small town nestled in the Appalachians. And in the Appalachians around the 1860s, there was a bit of a class system going on where generally the wealthier farmers slash plantation owners inhabited the fertile valleys near rivers and such, 
Before the war, they used slaves, but after the war, they employed the poor people of the region, and typically these people inhabited the surrounding hills and mountains. Largely of Scottish and Irish descent, in the subsequent years following the Civil War, the hill folk of this region got labeled with the often derogatory term hillbilly, but that's for another episode, perhaps. But this region during this time was characterized thusly by the New York Herald the day after Tom Dooley's execution. The community in the vicinity of this tragedy is divided into two entirely separate and distinct classes. The one occupying the fertile lands adjacent to Yadkin River and its tributaries is educated and intelligent and the other, living on the spurs and ridges of the mountains, is ignorant, poor, and depraved. A state of immorality unexampled in the history of any country exists among these people, and such a general system of free-loveism prevails, that is, a wise child that knows his father. Now, we can argue over how biased and unfair this characterization was, but essentially it's saying that the people here slept around a lot and started early. Or at least that's how the hill folk of the area behaved, according to the prejudices of the time. Tom Dooley's family came to this region after the Revolutionary War, and his grandfather owned land in the hills and in the valley, but mostly in the hills. So the Dooley family had both a rich and poor line of descendants in the area. So let's enter into this story now, Anne Triplett, a.k.a. Anne, I'm ready for this jelly, a.k.a. Anne Foster, a.k.a. Anne Melton, as she would later be known. So Anne and Tom grew up together more or less about a half mile from each other. Anne grew up with her unmarried mother and Tom with his mother and father. Each of them had siblings. Now, when Tom was about 10, his dad died, leaving Tom to quickly grow up to be a man. And quickly did he become one. Uh, apparently, Tom and Anne began having sexual relations with each other uh, around the ages of hmm, 12 or 13-ish. And this continued for a few years until Anne, at the age of 15 or 16-ish, um, in 1859, got married to 20-year-old James Melton, a.k.a. Sweet Blind Eye James a successful cobbler. Now, this age gap was certainly common back then, and also Anne's mother noted that she had caught her daughter in bed with Tom two years after the war began, but also after her marriage to James. So this would be around 1859 as the Civil War started in 1861. Apparently, James was too busy making shoes to be bothered with such things as caring about his wife's affair. He legitimately appeared to be okay with it. Well, in 1861, the Civil War comes knocking, and Tom, about 17 now, joins the 42nd Regiment of the North Carolina Infantry to fight with the Confederacy in the Civil War. Incidentally, Tom's two brothers also joined, but they died. Now, Tom served in the unit as a musician, a drummer. I guess he had some musical talent as he was also known to diddle the fiddle. Interestingly, Tom was taken as a Union prisoner of war during the Battle of Wise Fork in March of 1865 
and then spent the rest of the war as a prisoner at Camp Hammond in Maryland. After the war ended, he was released and went back to Elkville, North Kakalaki, and apparently couldn't resist the loins of his former lover. And he and Anne picked up where they left off. Giggity giggity. Unemployed and even more attractive with his added swagger of war mystique, him and Anne had many of frolics in her home, one which she shared with her husband James. And apparently, as he was earlier, James was even more okay with this. Just doing his part to support the troops, I guess. Seriously, I didn't find too much about James, but it seems to me that maybe he wasn't really that into women. I don't know, although he was married later on, but I don't know, it seems like I'd care more, you know. But anyways, James wasn't having sex with his wife anymore and didn't mind Tom sharing the bed with his wife. A juicy, right? Well, let's add a little more juice. Enter Pauline Foster, a.k.a. Pauline the Dream, a.k.a. Anne's cousin. I think she was a second cousin, but still kinfolk. All right. In 1866, around March-ish, Pauline came to town. She was from a neighboring county about 30 miles away, and she was there visiting her grandfather, allegedly. But during the trial for Tom, it later came out that she was there to get treatment for syphilis. So while she was in town, James hired her to do some odds and ends on the farm. Wait, I thought you said it was a cobbler, Josh. Well, in this area at this time, a lot of the poorer people did what was called subsistence farming, in where they just focused on growing enough food for them and their family, didn't create any surpluses to sell, just the bare minimum to survive. Okay, James's house was a small one-room cabin. This cabin had a three beds, one for James, one for Anne slash Tom, and then one for Pauline, it was the guest bed, I guess. Sometimes, now, Pauline shared a bed with Tom and Anne. And well, soon, Tom began having a sexual relations with Laura. Two girls for every boy. Thanks, Jan and Dean. Pauline would often sit in Tom's lap while guests were over, although she said it was just to provide some shade so people wouldn't think Tom and Anne were boinking. But they knew. They all knew. Plus, people generally regarded Pauline as a bit of a hussy. In fact, one of the witnesses at the trial, a Mr. George Washington Anderson, aka the true inventor of the Anderson train runner, said that Pauline had been with him and Tom at the same time in the woods at least once. <gasps> Salacious. Man, this is getting hot. Well, let me crank up the heat even more. Enter Laura Foster, a.k.a. Laura the Frail Beaver, a.k.a. the Fourth Corner, a.k.a. another cousin of Anne and Pauline. So, Pauline started visiting Laura, and it didn't take long before Tom started visiting Laura, too. Now, she was described, Laura, Laura was described as frail, beautiful, with large front teeth and a gap. So, I'm not sure how old she was, but she still lived at home with her father, who caught her and Tom in bed on more than one occasion, 
and apparently he didn't care either. Man, this Tom guy must have been really convincing. Like, the smoothest of the smooth. Now, Tom and Laura slept together for a bit until Tom stopped seeing her suddenly, and the reason for this is because Tom went to Dr. George Carter, aka Doc Syphilis, and he went to his facility to get treatment for, you guessed it, syphilis. Tom had told the doc that that skank Laura Foster gave him the disease, as apparently this was the last person he was sleeping with. Ah, but in reality, he had gotten it from Pauline. But because of their menage à trois, menage I don't know, some kind of French term for a group thing. But Anne also started receiving syphilis treatments. So about two months passed and Laura disappeared. Now, three days before her disappearance, Laura's father said Tom had visited and spoke to Laura for about an hour. And three days later, Tom visited again while the father was not home. Hmm, interesting. The next morning, when Laura's father woke, he found his daughter gone. And one of his horses also gone. Well, I reckon she just went for an early morning ride. Ah, but the next day the horse returned and Laura did not. Well, now the community sent out a search party and spent weeks looking for her body. Their search led them to the woods behind Tom Dooley's house. He did have his own place, even if he was never there, wink wink. But near his house, they found some rope, uh, and they figured this was the rope used to tie Laura's horse to a tree, as the horse did return with like a broken rope uh, tied to it. And then they also found a spot on the ground which they thought was blood. Now, as people began to talk, they began to suspect Tom had a hand in Laura's disappearance. And around June 25th, Tom left town and headed about 40 miles north to Tennessee, eventually making his way to a farm near the town of Trade, Tennessee, owned by Colonel James Grayson, a.k.a. the guy from the song with little to actually do with the story. So Tom arrived around the 4th of July and stayed maybe mm, five nights or so. Here he worked on the farm a few days before making enough money to buy him some new boots. But by now the word was out. The authorities were looking for Tom and Colonel Grayson assisted two deputies in apprehending Tom. The colonel tied him to his horse and Tom was escorted back to Wilkes County Jail in North Carolina on July 11th. I'm guessing this is why Colonel Grayson was kind of a part of that famous song. He, he was like a visible part of Tom's return, I guess, whatever. Interestingly, again... Pauline made a trip to Tennessee around July 16th, and about two weeks later, Anne made a trip to Watuga County, where Pauline was from, and I guess got a message to her letting her know that the authorities were looking for her as well, so Pauline decided to return to North Carolina, where she was arrested and taken to jail as well. I suppose her brief time in the slammer made Pauline decide to tell what she knew. She spilt the beans, Jimmy! And what she knew was where Laura was buried. She stated to authorities that a few weeks earlier, Anne had shown her where Laura's body was. You see, Pauline's story was that Anne and Tom murdered Laura. Okay, so now the authorities released Pauline from jail, and she took them to where she said the gravesite was. And this is now around September 1st. 
So Pauline took the search party into the woods and stopped near a log as Pauline said she couldn't go any further, but the body was near here. So the search party you know, conducted a limited examination of the area and in about 30 minutes discovered a grave. One of the searcher's horses, I guess, detected the decomposition and snorted near the area. Fact, horses hate dead bodies. So they dug up a body and Dr. Carter examined the corpse and CSI'd him a probable cause of death, that being a stab wound between the third and fourth rib. Now the body was badly decomposed and by this time it had been buried for about three months. But a positive ID was confirmed by her big teeth, the gap in her teeth, and the dress she was wearing. Now, after the discovery of the body, Pauline was released from jail, and Anne was arrested instead. And a trial for Anne and Tom was scheduled for October 1st, 1866. The twists and turns in this case weren't done yet, my friends. Former Governor of North Carolina, Zebulon Vance, a.k.a. Former Colonel in the Confederacy, a.k.a. Cool name, Zebulon so Zebulon decided to defend Tom pro bono. Well, you can imagine adding this detail to an already sensational story. Well, it just catapulted the exposure. You know, some say there's a lot of politics going on behind the scenes of why uh, Zebulon decided to do this pro bono. And, and, you know, it's a lot of ins and outs of it, but I'm not going to get into that. But let's just say um, as it went on. The um, defense had a couple of requests. One, that Tom and Anne be tried separately. And two, to change the venue to Statesville, North Carolina, in order to receive a fair trial. Both were granted. Well, during the first trial, that's right, I said first, all the dirt came out and more. So, Tom was found guilty of murder. But after an appeal... That verdict was thrown out because of irregularities in admission of testimony. The second trial was set for January 20th, 1868, and a special court called a Court of Oyer and Terminer, aka To Hear and Determine, was called. Now, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not 100% clear on what this type of court does exactly. I don't think they are around much anymore, but I think it's similar to a grand jury, but maybe any legal listeners can clarify that for me. So these trials were largely made up of circumstantial evidence as no direct witnesses observed any actual murder. And it was a lot of she said, he said, going back and forth in the testimonies. Now the testimonies are a bit heavy, so I'll try to summarize some of the most important uh, thusly. During testimony, Jane Melton's future wife's uncle, Rufus Hall, a.k.a. Snitch Supreme, testified that Tom told him he would put through the woman who gave him syphilis, and this would have been Laura in his mind, although Pauline was the actual syphiliser. Pauline said she basically overheard someone talking to Tom one time, that someone thought Tom killed Laura. Now, the sheriff that arrested Tom pushed Pauline to admit that she had said, quote, I and Dooley killed Laura, and then I went to Tennessee, unquote. But Pauline said this was a joke. Another witness testified that after the examination of the body, 
Pauline said to someone there that she would, quote, I would swear a lie any time for Tom Dooley, wouldn't you, George? Unquote. Pauline said this was also a joke. Also, another witness said that on the evening of Laura's disappearance, that Pauline told Laura's father that for one quart of liquor, she could get his horse back, indicating she knew where it was. She later said in court that this, too, was a joke. Clearly, Pauline had horrible comedic timing. Pauline also had testified that Anne told her that she had killed Laura, and if she ever told anyone, she would kill her, too. Now, most of the testimonies were about who saw Anne, Laura, and Tom, when and where, and on the timing of syphilis contraction. Also, what Pauline, Anne, and Tom were doing the night before, a lot of drinking apparently. Also to note, the grave where Laura had been buried was shallow and not big enough. This indicated that it had been done hastily. So, Tom never told anyone he killed Laura, and all he told Rufus was he wanted to kill the woman who gave him syphilis. Which I think would be a somewhat normal reaction of disgust with anyone, really. Well, the trial didn't last too long, and Tom was found guilty of murdering Laura and sentenced to death by hanging May 1st, 1868. Not over just yet. The night before he was to die, Tom met with Richard Allison, a.k.a. Soft Hands, a.k.a. the defense assistant at the jail. So, allegedly, Tom gave Richard a note where he confessed to be the only person involved in the murder, but made him promise not to hand it over until he was dead. So the next day, Tom is taken to a field where a makeshift gallows was erected. After about an hour-long speech, Tom continued to proclaim his innocence and stated the only reason he was convicted was because witnesses at his trial had lied. So the rope dropped and Tom fell, but his neck didn't snap. So he dangled there for about another five minutes until he stopped breathing. Hangings were tricky if not done right and could be quite gruesome, so this seems to be the case of Tom's death. Well, now Tom is dead, and per the terms of the trials, Anne was set to be tried separately. But remember that note Tom wrote to the assistant defense guy where he claimed to be the only one involved in Laura's death? Well, Anne was found not guilty because of this and went back to her life. So it looks like she went back with James and they had two daughters and later she died sometime between 1871 and 1875. Some say she died from late stages of syphilis, others from a carding accident. At any rate, I believe this would put her in her 30s. And in 2009, Governor of North Carolina Mike Easley, aka The Big Easley, was sent a request to pardon Tom Dooley on his last day in office. It was denied. And that's the true story of Tom Dooley, a love square, and an Appalachian murder. Now you know what I know. So, what really happened here? Well, there are several theories. One, the accepted theory, is that Tom actually killed Laura by himself. But this is boring. Another theory was that Laura never was murdered in the first place. But Josh, how is this so? They had a body. Well, during the trials, one witness, Metsy Scott, 
aka Betsy the Destroyer, said she had witnessed Laura riding the morning she went missing. She said she was on a horse riding with a bundle of clothes in her lap coming from her father's house. Betsy stated that she was talking to Laura and basically that Laura had said she was with Tom earlier and that she was on her way to meet him. But that bundle of clothes in her lap, what were they for? Did Laura really run away from town and fake her death, perhaps framing Tom as she was scorned by him and given the syphilis? Perhaps she had another similarly looking girl killed and dressed as her to complete the fake out. Forensics not being that good at the time, a badly decomposed body could easily be mistaken. Also, it is said that Anne on her deathbed said she knew something that could have spared Tom from death. Perhaps that Laura was really alive? I think this theory is the least likely though. Now another, perhaps even more crazy theory was that Anne was a lesbian, or bisexual let's say. And she was in a romantic relationship with Laura and wanted to run away with her. I guess lesbianism was fully frowned upon, but three ways and swinging was quite okay. But Anne wanted to properly say goodbye to Tom with one more night of shagging. But that got interrupted, so when she met Laura to escape, Anne was hesitant on leaving without that last boink fest. And her and Laura got into an argument, and Anne accidentally ended up stabbing Laura, killing her. And this was witnessed by Pauline, who was watching them in the woods, and Pauline and Anne buried Laura to try to cover it up. This theory, I'm a bit cold on as well. I'm more of the theory that Anne and Pauline committed the murder because a love triangle was cool, but a fourth was one too many. Plus, Tom thought she gave everyone syphilis, so I can see the jealousy thing rearing its head. Well, because of the sensationalism of this story and the legends and rumors surrounding it in the years after and, you know, the prejudice of the hill folk, we may never really know what happened. But this story made its way into folk song and about 90 years after the murders, the Kingston Trio made the most popular version of the song called Tom Dooley, which reached number one in 1958. Some side notes, you can visit the graves of Laura Foster and Tom Dooley in North Carolina today, although there are some discrepancies on the tombstones, but this is due to people mistakenly putting down the wrong date in years of the incidences. I'm also going to link to a more detailed account of the events and trials in the show notes, so check it out when you have time, it's pretty cool. So as always, I leave with you a haiku. Tom was pimpin', true. Three ladies, oh what to do? Should have stuck with two. And that's all the time this week. Check out our main site for other stories on IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. Send me an email with a haiku or show suggestion or let me know what that court thing was about. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at IncredPod. Rate us on iTunes and peep us out on YouTube and Stitcher. For Incredible Stories Podcast, I'm Josh. And remember, the journey of a thousand tales begins with the first word.